0: 2007 October 24. Today is lecture 24, Matter and Light. We just about had one of the uh, one of I got one of those email letters from someone who listens to the podcast, in addition to all of you in the class, from Tasmania. Worldwide reach. That's that's not quite a record. It's almost. You would have to be in Perth, Australia, to be almost exactly on the opposite side of the planet from from Columbus. Actually, you have to be about 300 miles off the coast of Perth. So we'll say hi to the hi to the guy, a we'll little shout out to the guy in Tasmania if he's still listening. So we've been talking about the properties of matter and light this week, and we've talked yesterday about the basic properties of atomic matter, nuclear matter, and so forth. Today we wanna start beginning to put those ideas together and talk about how matter and light begin to interact. And this is actually two lectures which we'll cover today and tomorrow about how we actually use the interaction between light and matter to learn something about light sources from the type of light they produce. So the key ideas today is I want to introduce a concept which we have all know but have never probably even thought about and that's the concept of temperature. We'll introduce what's called the Kelvin Absolute Temperature Scale, which measures the internal energy content of a piece of matter, be it a gas or a liquid or a solid. We'll say a little bit about that. It's actually a fairly important idea to us here in this class for later on. And then the rest of the key ideas are actually a restatement of Kirchhoff's three laws of spectroscopy. They are as follows. A hot, dense object produces a continuous blackbody spectrum of emission a hot low density gas produces an emission line spectrum and a cool dense gas produces an absorption line spectrum and we'll be describing in this class all of those in turn and we'll be seeing more applications of them tomorrow but today I want to lay down the basic principles of how matter and light begin to interact matter and light interact with each other and it shouldn't be surprising because I remember I said yesterday that Matter is basically composed of atoms, which are protons and neutrons together in a nucleus surrounded by electrons. The electron and the nucleus are bound together by electromagnetic fields. Similarly, atom to atom within a material is also bound together by electric and magnetic fields. That's why even though atomic matter is fairly empty, one part in 10 to the 15, it still feels fairly solid when it's in solid form because of the electric and magnetic fields that bind matter to other matter within a material or within a molecule or other compound. So it shouldn't be surprised that light, which we said a couple days ago, is electromagnetic radiation and ordinary matter, which is bound together on the atomic scale by electromagnetic fields, should intimately interact with each other. And in fact, they do. There's a number of ways in which matter and light can interact. The first of these is that matter can transmit light through it. For example, transparent materials like glass or water or air is actually electromagnetic waves passing through atomic materials. Matter can reflect light. In fact, most of what we see in the world, with only a few exceptions as we'll see momentarily, has to do with reflected light. You see me because of the light reflecting off my body, not because you're seeing the light that I actually emit, and so forth. Matter can also gain energy from an interaction with light by absorbing photons. Remember, we said that photons were little packets of energy. They carry energy with them at the speed of light. When matter collects photon, when hit a photon hits a piece of matter, it will actually vanish. It will give up all of its energy to that chunk of matter. And the object gaining energy will heat up. It won't collect photons. Can't, I can't, like, open my pocket and collect photons in them. If I hit my jacket with photons, the, the jacket will begin to warm up. So absorption, absorbing the energy of the photons, makes the matter heat up, get warmer. Conversely, matter can lose energy by emitting light. If I was to walk outside on an extremely cold night, take off my jacket, take off my shirt, and just stand there like this, I'm gonna get really cold really fast. Now part of that, of course, is the air, care, air currents carrying away heat, but also I will begin to radiate heat, infrared heat, into the sky. And I will actually begin to lose energy through that process of radiation. What are photons? Photons are packets of energy. So if energy is being carried off from an object, that means energy is being carried away. Photons are carrying that energy away. That reduces the total energy content of the object, and we'll say that the object cools off. Now the last two of these matter gaining energy by absorbing light or losing energy by emitting light absorption and emission, both bear on the same quantity that I kept mentioning over and over again, the internal energy content of an object. What do I mean by that? What do I mean by internal energy content? Well, what I mean by internal energy content is I'm really talking about temperature, the thermodynamic property of that material. Temperature is basically a measurement of the internal energy content of an object. A high temperature object has a lot of internal energy, a low temperature object has very little internal energy. Some examples. In a solid, what I mean by internal energy are the internal vibrations of atom to atom and molecule to molecule within the material. If I could take this table, for example, and take a super microscope and zoom down to the level where I can see the individual atoms that make up this tabletop, what I would see is a bunch of atoms tied to all their neighbor atoms by electromagnetic fields. But I won't see them all sitting together like a little tinker toy lattice. They'll actually be sitting there wiggling and jiggling next to each other. One's pushing and the other are pulling and of course as you push and pull on one atom, they push and pull on all the other atoms around them. And they'd be just jiggering around, constrained by their electric and magnetic fields, but just jiggering around and vibrating in various directions. If the material was really hot, those vibrations would be very vigorous. It'd be just twitching all over the place. As the temperature goes down, those vibrations will get a lot slower and slower until I can imagine a low enough temperature that I steal all the internal energy and all the vibrations stop. So in a solid material, what I mean by internal energy is the internal atom to atom and molecule to molecule vibrations deep inside the material. In a gas, I have a sort of a different concept. In a gas, the atoms are all free. They aren't bound to each other by electromagnetic fields. In fact, they spend most, time, most of their time, depending on the density of the gas, far from all the other atoms in the gas. But every now and then, they'll bounce into another atom and, and sort of rattle off it. They'll get close enough for their electromagnetic fields to push against each other and bounce off. But again, if I took a super microscope and I sort of zoomed in on a little parcel of gas in this room, What I would see is a bunch of nitrogen, oxygen, water vapor, and carbon dioxide molecules zipping around with various speeds. Some slow, some faster, but there'll be kind of an average speed. And in fact, it will look kind of like a bell curve, kind of like the class grade curve. If the temperature is really, really high, then the individual kinetic energy per particle is going to be high, and the grade curve will be skewed up to high energies. So I'll see a lot of fast atoms. As I begin to make the air colder and colder, I'll see the atoms get slower and slower and slower relative to each other. The grade curve will slide, if you will, from A to F. In this case, we're not talking about a grade curve, but the distribution of particle velocities. And it will, in fact, be a little bell-like curve. It's called a Maxwell distribution, not a bell curve. But you'll see a range of speeds per atom. Here's a nice cartoon showing that. I've got a cool gas in a box over here on the left and a hot gas in a box over on the right. And I've actually done a computation in this particular one so that there's a range of speeds, they're all bouncing off each other and bouncing off the walls. In the cool gas, they're moving relatively slow. But in the hot gas, they're just zipping around like crazy. So for a gas, what internal energy means is it's hotter, the individual atoms are moving faster. The kinetic energy per particle, per atom, per molecule in the gas is faster and faster. So how do we quantify this relative energy? Well, we do so in terms of this quantity called the temperature. Now, the temperature scale that we're going to use to quantify internal energy is a little bit of an unfamiliar temperature scale to most of you because we don't use it in everyday life. It's called the Kelvin temperature scale. Its full name is the Kelvin absolute temperature scale. It's an absolute temperature system developed by Lord Kelvin in the 19th century and he used the Celsius scale of temperature. You know, where zero is the freezing point for Celsius, remember zero is the freezing point of water, and 100 degrees Celsius is the boiling point of water, both of which measured at sea level, at normal sort of gas pressure here on the surface of the Earth. But the Celsius scale by itself is kind of useless because zero temperature is when ice freezes, but then I can have minus 10 Celsius, minus 20 Celsius, and minus 30 Celsius. That's not negative energy content, That's just there because I arbitrarily defined the temperature scale in terms of the properties of water at sea level. What you really want is a scale of temperature so zero degrees temperature corresponds to zero internal energy. Enter Lord Kelvin. Kelvin basically took the Celsius scale and then shifted its zero point, shifted its zero from instead of zero degrees Celsius being defined in terms of the freezing point of water, zero degrees Kelvin, absolute temperature, is defined as absolute zero. That's the place where, classically speaking, all motion stops within a gas. So I can imagine my little box with the little gas molecules bouncing around in the box. If I could freeze it colder and colder and colder and colder until I hit zero degrees Kelvin, all those atoms would simply fall to the bottom of the box and stop. That would be absolute zero. But instead, they're bouncing around. So the way the Kelvin scale works is as follows. Zero degrees Kelvin is absolute zero. It's this theoretical place where all motion would stop, classically speaking. 273 degrees Kelvin is when pure water freezes at sea level. That's what zero degrees Celsius is. So you can see now, to convert between the Celsius scale and Kelvin, you take the temperature in Celsius and subtract 273. No, take the temperature scale in Kelvin and add 273. So absolute zero corresponds to minus 273 degrees Celsius. Man, I'm, getting tough, I'm having a tough time today. Water boils at 100 degrees Celsius, add 273, water will boil at 373 degrees Kelvin, and so forth. Well, why do we do this? Well, the reason is because by rescaling the Celsius system so that zero is at this classical absolute zero of zero motion, is that the temperature in Kelvin scales directly proportional to the internal energy. So if I go from 100 degrees Kelvin to 600 degrees Kelvin, I've doubled the internal energy. Whereas if I go from 0 Celsius to 100 Celsius, uh, uh, that's not a factor of, well, let's say 1 Celsius. I can't do 0. There's no number I can multiply 0 by to get 100. You can immediately see the problem. But if I go from 1 degree Celsius to 100 degrees Celsius, that's not 100 times the internal energy. In fact, it's whatever 373 divided by 273 is. Zero Kelvin corresponds to zero classical internal energy, all motion stopping. So this is a very convenient scale to use in physical terms. It gives me a direct proportionality to the internal energy content by simply scaling it with this absolute temperature scale. We are normally going to express a lot of temperatures in this class in terms of degrees Kelvin, except for certain times when I'm talking about environmental temperatures, like the temperature on the Earth, the temperature on Mars, where I'm going to try to put it in human scale, and I'm going to convert to either Celsius or Fahrenheit. Now, I'll confess to you, as I have before, I've never fully gotten the Celsius term from everyday use. I'm I'm still a Fahrenheit guy, so I'm going to use Fahrenheit even though it's not metric, but just don't tell anybody. Maybe I should pause the recorder here so my European colleagues don't yell at me. All right, so that's what internal temperature is. Now, what do we want to look at? How do we want to look at the light that comes off matter due to its internal energy? Well, what's a spectrum? Well, remember back a couple days ago, we talked about what the electromagnetic spectrum was. The electromagnetic spectrum is simply the distribution of photon energies emitted by a light source. For example, it's asking a question. Spectrum asks the question, how many photons of each energy are emitted from the object? Does it emit a whole lot of ultraviolet, high-energy visible photons and very few red photons, low-energy photons? Or is it kind of a low-energy source? It emits a, few red, a whole bunch of red photons but very few blue photons. Okay, so a spectrum is just basically the distribution of photon energies. Have I got a lot of high energy, a lot of low energy, or a lot in the middle? Of course, we can be more specific about that, and the fact that I've now talked about internal energy is giving you an idea of where I'm going with this idea. How do we observe a spectrum? Well, one way is you can sort of look at the object and say, gee, that looks kind of blue, that looks kind of red. That's not very quantitative. So what you do is you actually use a, a, a machine, a de- an optical device called a spectrograph. A spectrograph is an optical device that takes in light from some source, be it radio waves or infrared or whatever, depending on the design, and if you will, sorts the light into its component colors. It takes the light and it kind of takes the incoming light beam with all the different wavelengths, all the different energies mixed together, and divides them up and distributes them from low energy to high energy. It breaks the light into its component energies, or if you will, into component colors, if we're thinking about it in the sort of visible light sense. Good examples of optical devices that do this are like prisms or or little diffraction gratings. Tomorrow I'm going to bring in some little diffraction gratings mounted in 35 millimeter slide carriers. And we'll get to play with a couple spectra tomorrow when we talk about atomic spectra. But either way, I have some device, and there's lots of different ways to do this technologically, to break light up into its component parts. It's a sifter. It's a light sorting device. So here's an example, this is one again, all of you have probably played with prisms at some point, you get those little glass crystals you hang up in the in the window and when light shines, it shines a little spectra of rainbows around which drives the cat nuts. So here's an example of one of these. I'll take a prism, pass white light into it, and what will come out the back is a spectrum of red light to blue light, all the colors of the rainbow. In fact, circular circular droplets of water act as little dispersing elements, as little spectral devices, and so it's not surprising you get this sort of run of colors of the rainbow because you got basically tons of little prisms in the sky made of water. Now this is a familiar picture here from um, lots of things. It shows up in physics books. It shows up on the front cover of the Dark Side of the Moon album by Pink Floyd. And in fact, they even got the spectral colors right. There have been a couple of famous physics books that have reversed the order of colors here. The order of colors is very specific. It turns out that red light is bent less going through a glass prism than blue light. Green light is bent a little bit less, and yellow even less. So what we see as we go from red to blue is I see from less to greater amounts of bending. That's the optical trick that does the sorting. There are lots of other ways to do this. So I show a few colors here. The gradations of color that PowerPoint graphics are capable of is not very high, but you can see red, orange, yellow, green, blue, indigo, and violet. Yeah, we'll just sort it up into four colors, red, yellow, green, and blue, low energy to high energy, long wavelength to short wavelength here. And this spread out bit of light, this sorted light on the side, I call a spectrum. Now, how do we classify spectra? I see PowerPoint's doing a good number on me today. We classify spectra according to a set of empirical rules that were figured out in the 19th century by physicist and chemist uh, Gustav Kirchhoff, who, bearded gentleman show up at the upper right-hand corner, who came up with three empirical laws. These are just descriptions that all spectra that you see from all different kinds of objects are made up of three basic components, either singly or kind of mixed up. The first law is that a hot solid or a hot dense gas will produce a continuous spectrum shown here in this top panel, it's kind of the continuous rainbow wash of color, red, orange, yellow, green, blue, indigo, violet. Okay, the simple blue through red of the rainbow. The second rule is that if instead of using a hot, dense solid or a hot, dense gas, or maybe a glowing puddle of molten goo, you have instead a very hot, very thin, low-density gas, say a a a glass tube full of hydrogen gas, and you heat it up by smashing electrical current through it. That gas will begin to glow, and when you pass its light through a prism, instead of seeing a continuous wash of rainbow colors, you see a series of very, very bright lines in the spectrum. Now these lines appear here basically because of an artifact of the way most spectrographs work, is they use a long narrow slit as the entrance point for the light, so that you don't have red light adjacent to orange light smearing into each other because of the finite extent of the object. So you just do a little tiny slit, usually like a pair of razor blades, just brought together edge to edge, so you make a long, thin slit. You pass the light from that through the spectrograph, and then you spread it out, and you have a little image of the slit at each color. So this got turned a line from the earliest version of the spectrograph, and so now we call any emission spot in the spectrum an emission line. So it's darkness between, but brightness at very specific colors. Here in this particular case, this hot low density gas, which is in fact hydrogen being heated by electricity, shows a red, a kind of blue-green, a blue, and a couple of violet lines in a pattern like this. Finally, if I take a continuous spectrum source like a hot dense gas or hot dense solid, and I interpose between me and that continuous source a vial, a glass container containing a cold but dense gas. So lots of gas together, but it's cold. It's kind of room temperature or colder. Then what I'm gonna see is, first of all, I'll see the background rainbow wash of color from that continuous, from that hot dense solid or hot dense gas. But then the cold gas in between has absorbed out or removed certain colors from the light coming through. appears as a series of black lines, as if something has subtracted just that color right there in the red, just that blue-green color, just that blue color, violet color, and so forth, but it lets all the other light through. Now, when Kirchhoff discovered this in the 19th century, we did not have a decent atomic theory of matter, and we did not understand spectra. But chemists did begin to understand, analytic chemists sort of knew that you know, as you heated different materials and so you burned them in a flame and you made a hot gas out of them and you looked at that gas with a spectrometer, that different materials produced different patterns of bright emission lines. Sometimes those gases were really nasty things like iodine. You didn't want to be burning iodine in the room. In fact, a few people did and they kind of died. That's bad. So you put the iodine in a jar heat it up a little bit so it makes a nice big iodine cloud, and then you shine white light in it from a you know a hot arc lamp or something like that, and what you would see was a patterning of dark lines, kind of like the same patterning of bright lines that guy saw just before he fell over dead from breathing iodine gas. So there were different ways to make spectra in the lab depending on how you handled the materials. If you heated up iron... For example, like a stick of iron, you get a continuous spectrum. But if you struck a spark off iron at very high temperature in a little vacuum tube and made an iron gas for an instant, you would instead get a series of bright emission lines. And that just confused the heck out of them. They didn't get that one at all. But Kirchhoff noticed that all these different kinds of spectra were reducible as three of these basic empirical descriptions. So let's go through each of these and now look at what's going on in each of these three different physical situations. So here's the basic situation, here's the basic picture we're gonna look at. I've got a continuous source, a hot solid, in this case, a tungsten tungsten carbide filament in a light bulb. If I looked at it directly through my prism, I would see a continuous spectrum from a hot solid. If I passed it through a cloud of hydrogen gas, I would see that same rainbow continuous spectrum, but I'd be missing certain colors producing these black absorption lines. Something's absorbed those colors out. If on the other hand I made this cloud of hydrogen gas hot and looked at it from the side, what I would see is a bright emission line spectrum where I see darkness everywhere except in very specific colors. And of course people kind of notice that the colors in the emission line spectrum of a gas exactly match the black absorption lines in the cold version of that self-same gas. So let's see how this stuff works. Let's start with the first of the laws, what a hot solid does. To understand what a hot solid does, I need to define something called a black body. A black body is an idealized material that absorbs all light. So it's black. Okay. Its basic properties are as follows. It absorbs not only all light, but it absorbs all light of all wavelengths. So it absorbs red, blue, green, yellow, infrared, ultraviolet, the whole nine yards. As it absorbs this light, it's soaking up photons. As it soaks up photons, the photons give up their energy to the material. They make the atoms in that black body vibrate a little faster, making the temperature go up. In fact, I characterize a black body by its temperature, by what temperature all those atoms are moving around together. But it isn't just the absorption properties of black bodies that are important. It's also the fact that in addition to being a perfect absorber, it's also a perfect radiator. Because it's a hot object. Hot objects are hotter than their surroundings. They're going to try to lose energy. Heat always flows from the hotter to the cooler, goes the first law of thermodynamics. And so how's the energy going to get off the object? Well, let's emit photons to carry off some of my excess energy. So it emits, a black body is an object that also emits light at all wavelengths. The energy is emitted. That it emits, whether it's mostly red light or blue light or infrared light, depends on that internal temperature. And in fact, the peak wavelength, whether I'm mostly infrared or mostly blue, also depends on that self-same temperature that describes the internal energy. It's an equilibrium situation. I'm absorbing light and I'm heating up but as I heat up I begin to radiate to try to control my temperature and when the amount of energy I'm receiving exactly matches the amount I'm radiating per second then I neither heat nor cool because I actually cool off as fast as I warm back up and so I reach an equilibrium. That equilibrium temperature that I achieve defines the temperature of the black body. Okay. Now, the way we describe what's the emission like from a black body. Let's first talk about it in terms of total power. What's the total amount of energy a black body of a given temperature radiates? Well, that's defined by something called the Stefan Boltzmann law, discovered independently by Stefan and Boltzmann. Boltzmann's the guy with the ZZ Top Style beard there. It's the energy emitted per second per unit area of the surface. So I've got a particular temperature. And for every square centimeter of the surface area of my skin, I'm gonna radiate an amount of energy, E, which is equal to sigma times the temperature of my internal temperature to the fourth power. Sigma is just a number, it's Boltzmann's constant. So I'm not gonna care what sigma is for this, it just simply makes the numbers come out right. But what's really important is that temperature to the fourth power. The amount of power coming off a black body is supremely sensitive to temperature. In words, what the Stefan-Boltzmann law says is that hotter objects are brighter, more energy at all wavelengths. Remember, brightness is a measure of the number of photons coming off the surface. Ultimately, the absolute brightness of a source was its luminosity, which is a measurement of the total power emitted. So the total power emitted per unit area, per square centimeter of a bowling ball or a table or a person, is proportional to the temperature of that body to the fourth power. So if I double the temperature of a body in Kelvin scale, the amount of energy radiated goes up like 2 to the 4th, or 16 times more energy. So it's a very, very strong function of the temperature. And again, it works in the direction that hotter objects are brighter at all wavelengths. Not just brighter in the red or brighter in the blue, but brighter at all wavelengths. I haven't said anything yet about the proportions of photons of different colors. The whole thing goes up with temperature. Well, what wavelength do those photons come out? Well, they come out according to something called Wien's Law. This is Wien. This is uh, Wilhelm Karl Werner Otto Fritz Franz Wien, known to all his friends as Willy. He realized that a blackbody spectrum will emit a peak wavelength where the most energy is coming out as a function of the photon energy, photon color, the peak wavelength will occur at 2,900,000 nanometers divided by the temperature in Kelvin. That formula doesn't concern me as much here. Maybe homework four it might concern you. But really what I care about is this. Hotter objects are also bluer, right? As the temperature goes up, the wavelength is inversely proportional to temperature. So if I double the temperature, the peak wavelength is half. Smaller wavelength is bluer light. So hot objects are bluer, cool objects are redder. Now I gotta put these two together. As an object gets hotter, it gets brighter at all wavelengths and bluer. As an object gets cooler, it gets fainter at all wavelengths and redder. Okay, so brighter at all wavelengths with temperature increased by the fourth power, the Stefan-Boltzmann law, and then bluer or redder with temperature, bluer with increasing temperature redder with decreasing temperature according to Wien's law. And these two laws allow me to describe the basic behavior of all blackbody or blackbody-like objects. Here's what the actual spectrum looks like. It's called a Planck curve for that same max Planck we talked about the other day, E equals H times the frequency for photons. A 10,000 degree Kelvin blackbody well, peak out somewhere in the ultraviolet. So I've got wavelength measured in nanometers and total flux here measured in some arbitrary unit. This is energy per second per square centimeter coming off the surface of this. And I just rescaled it so you don't have to care about the units too much. So a 10,000 degree Kelvin object, an 8,000 degree Kelvin object, and a 6,000 degree Kelvin object. The first thing you notice is that the total amount of energy add up all the light, all the power at every single wavelength I get a bigger area underneath the curve for 10,000, which is bigger than for 8,000, which is bigger than for 6,000. And the ratios of the areas of these curves will scale as the fourth power of the temperature. That's what I mean by T to the fourth. All wavelengths get brighter. Notice even the peak, however, is shifting to the blue. 10,000 degree Kelvin black body emits way out in the ultraviolet. You get a bad sunburn next to this thing. 8,000 Kelvin... Still in the ultraviolet, but now it's more blue than red. So to the eye, an 8,000 Kelvin degree light would look kind of blue. 6,000 Kelvin, there's a little less blue, a whole bunch of kind of greenish, yellowish, and only a little bit of red. And when you beat the eye against that, it will look kind of yellowish. In fact, a kind of a yellowish white. Well, the sun is 5,500 degrees Kelvin, so it looks kind of like a yellowish white ball a 10,000 degree star will look ultraviolet, almost blue in color and a 3,000 degree Kelvin star would actually look red. Here's an example In fact, let's just do it. Let's take something I like this, I get to burn something today Let's take a solid, in this case iron steel, high iron steel, and heat it up in a flame. In fact, I don't want to hold that, so put that in the flame here. This is actually map gas, so it's a really good acetylene-based propane, so this is going to go pretty quick. David, could you give me a hand here? Could you go up behind the counter there and turn off all the lights in the room, please? Which you'll see some blue, yellow plastic sliders. Just slide them all the way down. Thank you. So let's set this guy nice and toasty here. I wouldn't stand that close to the flame. That's why I'm wearing the goggles. This thing will throw off a little bit of junk. There we go. Now we're getting nice and toasty. So room temperature is about 300 Kelvin, and the you know room temperature stuff is out here at the back of the steel rod, and there's not much going on there. But I'm going to heat this, this end of steel up here to about maybe 600, maybe 800 degrees Kelvin in this hot flame. It's glowing nice cherry red. If I get it going even hotter, when it's in the flame proper, its red color is actually going to shade over into orange. Maybe a little yellow. Alright. But now I take it out of the flame and I let it sit and cool in the air. Notice what happens. It starts to fade out very very fast and as it fades out, it actually gets slightly redder and redder and redder until finally it's almost faded out entirely. So it's a common observation. And if I really rapidly cool it down, it appears to go out entirely. But if I could see this in the infrared, it'd be glowing like crazy, but then it would all be glowing at about the same temperature. I should kick the lights up for me. Thank you, David. So as I take a rod of steel like that, actually the other ones, please. Put those down, take this one, those are off. Thank you. Okay, so as I go from 300 to 600 degrees Kelvin, the temperature increases by a factor of 2 in the Kelvin scale. As it increases by a factor of 2, the total power it emits per unit area goes up like 2 to the 4th power or 16 times. It gets a whole lot brighter at all colors. The peak wavelength shifts towards the blue by a factor of two by Wien's law. It goes from about 10 microns in the infrared to about 5 microns in the near-infrared. However, we see the long blue tail of that spectrum begin to come up at red wavelengths, with no blue at all, and so we see a kind of a blue-orange color. As I make it hotter, it kind of goes to yellow. You know, in our language, we talk about things being red hot, white hot, blue hot, It's kind of related to Veen's law, right? White really is a lot of blue light plus red light all mixed together, and our eye is not a very good spectrograph. But when it cools off, it goes from white hot to yellow to red and then fades entirely. But if I had a thermal infrared camera, I could actually see it fading even further as it goes into the red. I don't have a thermal infrared camera, unfortunately. This is the result of heating any black body. Again, to review, it will get brighter at all wavelengths and get bluer in color as it gets hotter. Take away the heat, it will get fader at all wavelengths and fade to the red. So, again, it's a quantification of what we actually experience every day. Here's some more examples. Take a person. I don't look like I'm glowing, but in fact, if I could go out into the infrared, this is an infrared light photograph of me taken a few years ago. My body temperature is about 310 degrees Kelvin which means my peak wavelength of emission is about 9400 nanometers. It's way out in the mid-infrared. A typical adult is actually emitting over our entire body area about 100 watts of infrared radiation. So if I flicked off the lights in here and had an infrared camera, what I'd see is a bunch of 100-watt glowing bulbs through the room. Now, clearly my skin here is the most direct radiating source, and so you see that as bright, I'm actually not wearing sunglasses. Those are regular glass glasses. They just happen to be opaque to infrared light, and so they block the light coming from my face there. So I'm not wearing shades in the dark. This, is room, this picture was taken in a darkened room. And you can just see the heat leaking out of the weave in my sweater here. This was a picture taken in the middle of winter. The sun is also acts, to a first approximation like a black body. The actual surface temperature of the sun is about 5,770 Kelvin, Wien's law tells me that will have a peak emission wavelength of about 500 nanometers which is right smack in the middle of the visible band however not only does it have a big temperature 5,000 degrees it's got a gigantic surface area so when you add up the entire surface area of the Sun 700,000 kilometers radius squared times 4 pi you get a total power output of about 3.8 times 10 to the 26 watts so to get the total power output of an object I take the sigma t to the fourth power per area and multiply by its surface area. These objects are hot and they're losing energy to their surroundings like a black body, approximately. Okay, emission line spectra. Any questions about continuous spectra before we go on? Emission line spectra, if I have a hot, low-density gas in a jar and I smash electricity or something into it to heat it up and look at it through my spectrograph, what I get is complete darkness and a series of very, very bright lines. For example, if it's hydrogen gas, I get this patterning of lines. It turns out that each individual atom emits only a very particular wavelength, giving the appearance of these bright, discrete lines in the spectrograph. And I see absolutely no light in between unless I've got light leaking in from someplace else in my lab. If I had a pure sample in a perfectly dark room, heated up the hydrogen, this is what I would see. So an emission line spectrum is very, very bright lines at very specific wavelengths, and they're always exactly the same wavelengths for the same materials. Hmm, very useful to chemists. It's a way to tell what a material is made of without a chemical test. You take its spectrum. They didn't know why those patterning of lines were the way they were, but it acted like a fingerprint, and they used it. Here, for example, is a series of spectra. This was taken in a lab, which unfortunately there was some continuous light from lamps, indicator lamps in the room that were leaking into the spectrograph. So you can see the continuous spectrum from, actually, that's the exit safety lamp in the lab. Here's hydrogen gas, a red line, a blue line, and and fairly faint in this picture, kind of a purple line. Helium has a different patterning of lines. Oxygen has this much more complicated patterning of red, yellow, green, and blue lines. Neon, mostly red, orange, and yellow, and then a little bit of green and blue. And then iron, if I could make an iron gas by striking a spark on an arc lamp, I would get a patterning of an awful lot of green lines and blue lines. A, a really bright iron spark will actually appear slightly greenish to the eye, and l- although it's sometimes so bright it looks white hot. So each of these elements has a very individual spectrum coming off of it. Why? Yeah, we'll talk about that tomorrow. An Absorption line spectrum, let's pick up the third one. I take a continuous lamp source like a hot piece of metal or a continuous source like like a tungsten filament lamp, set it up at one end of the lab and between me and the lamp I put a cold jar full of like iodine gas or something. What I get is that continuous spectrum from the background source, but something has absorbed or removed some of the emission lines. It turns out that the wavelengths of those absorption lines exactly correspond to the emission lines of the hot thin gas version of that same cold dense gas. And we call this an absorption line because the light is being absorbed by the atoms in the gas between me and my continuous source, and that's what's giving rise to this absorption spectrum. Here's an example. Here, I take a continuous source lamp, look at a cloud of hydrogen, I get a series of black lines that are exactly the same. Oops, oops. I get a series of black lines absorbed out of the continuous spectrum from the background source. If I line up the continuous source and the absorption spectrum and then put the emission line spectrum from the hot thin gas, the emission lines exactly line up with the black absorption lines in the cold version of the gas. Hmm, it's telling you the same basic process is going on in absorption or in emission depending upon the physical configuration. Here is an example of an absorption spectrum in nature instead of in the laboratory the sun is a hot, dense gas. So first for the, Kirchhoff's first law tells us it will be a hot, continuous spectrum. But the sun has an atmosphere of cooler gas above that hot, lower density surroundings. And I view the hot, lower density slayers through this screen of lower density, cooler gas. About 5,000 Kelvin, 10,000 Kelvin gas, at various temperatures. That gas will then begin to absorb out. A series of lines. You see, I've taken the long, thin spectrum, and I've wrapped it from blue to green, stacking those pieces like this. But you can see where various bits are taken out. It will turn out later. I'll tell you that that right there is hydrogen. Those are a pair of lines of sodium. That's magnesium. There's another hydrogen line. And a lot of those other little lines you see in there are mostly iron and calcium and a whole bunch of other stuff. I can identify from pure atomic stuff in the, in the lab and find them in the atmosphere, or the hot photosphere, as it's called, of the sun. Now, why does this work? Why does every element have a characteristic line spectrum? Why can I tell hydrogen from helium, from oxygen, from neon, when all I do is light it up in an electrical gas cylinder and look at the uh, spectrum coming through a spectrograph? The answer, it turns out, that it's going to reflect the internal atomic spectrum of that atom and it's going to depend upon the number and arrangement of electrons in orbit around that nucleus. Hmm, just yesterday we learned that each different element has a different number of protons and therefore a different number of electrons, all arranging themselves in various ways around the atom. So the spectrum is reflecting the deep atomic structure of the atom. Even if I don't understand what that is, I can still use it practically in the lab, but people wanted to understand why does the spectrum have the shape it does, And the effort to do that from the late 19th to the early 20th centuries unlocked the secret of atomic structure. And that's the topic that we will pick up tomorrow.